Ecclesia is a new church trying to live out the way of Jesus in Princeton, New Jersey. We pray this teaching invites you to love Jesus and people more deeply and to embrace the full life that Jesus offers each one of us. Grace and peace to you. Our scripture reading today comes from Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 through 23. My counsel is this, live freely, animated and motivated by God's spirit. Then you won't feed the compulsions of selfishness, for as there is a root of sinful self-interest in us that is at odds with a free spirit, just as the free spirit is incompatible with selfishness. These two ways of life are antithetical, so that you cannot live at times one way and at times another way, according to how you feel on any given day. Why don't you choose to be led by the Spirit and so escape the erratic compulsions of a law-dominated existence? It is obvious what kind of life develops out of trying to get your own way all the time. Repetitive, loveless, cheap sex, a stinking accumulation of mental and emotional garbage, frenzied and joyless grabs for happiness, trinket gods, magic show religion, Paranoid loneliness, cutthroat competition, all-consuming yet never satisfied wants, a brutal temper, an impotence to love or be loved, divided homes and divided lives, a small-minded and lopsided pursuits, the vicious habit of depersonalizing everyone into a rival, uncontrolled and uncontrollable addictions, ugly parodies of communities. I could go on. This isn't the first time I have warned you, you know. If you use your freedom this way, you will not inherit God's kingdom. But what happens when we live God's way? He brings gifts into our lives, much the same way that fruit appears in an orchard. Things like affection for others, exuberance about life, serenity. We develop a willingness to stick with things, a sense of compassion in the heart, and a conviction that a basic holiness permeates things and people. We find ourselves involved in loyal commitments, not needing to force our way in life, able to marshal and direct our energies wisely. Well, again, welcome. Um, this weekend, we are kicking off a new series. We, we now have gotten to the point where we can say that. This is our second ever teaching series, and we're calling this series Cultivated. Jesus calls each and every one of us. He says, when, when we meet him and we see him for who he is, he says, come and follow me. And what we see in the life of Christ is that Jesus traversed all sorts of different environments. We see Jesus spending time alone with his father. We see him in smaller groups and interactions with his closest friends and disciples. We see him in crowds. We see him in, di in these different settings engaging in mission, bringing the kingdom of God near, feeding people, and showing people the beauty of our God. The term we have adopted, and there are other churches that have, that have latched onto this term, but the term that we have adopted for what it means to follow Christ, to be near to him, is the word apprenticeship. Now, there's a luminary named Dallas Willard, and you will hear me quote from him a lot. But he defines apprenticeship this way. He says, an apprentice is simply someone who has decided to be with another person under appropriate conditions in, in order to become capable of doing what that person does or to become what that person is. And this is kind of an outdated model in our culture. You know, we go to school, you go get a four-year or a six-year, those of you who are Princeton PhDs, 12-year, whatever it is. 
we go to school and then we're expected to just be thrown in. But this apprenticeship model is what Jesus is inviting us to. He says, come be with me. Come see what I do. Come see how I am in the world and come be a part of that. And so we have to begin to reframe our world, our lives, our daily moments in light of who Jesus is. And to structure our lives to be with Jesus. Because in order to apprentice ourselves, the first, uh, the first condition of that is to be with that master. And so imagine with me, there's a major world leader coming to Princeton. The streets are barricaded. There are a ton of police cars and motorcycles in a motorcycle uh, with a couple of limousines at the center. And people stop on Nassau to see the spectacle pass by. And the motorcade makes its way right down the main street there to Nassau Hall to go inside into this beautiful palatial room where the dignitary will give his lecture to all these eager listeners. It would all be very special, right? And for those of you who live in Princeton, it would also be super annoying, right? Because all the roads would be blocked off. And this is the incredible, almost scandalous reality of Jesus' life. Jesus is the very Son of God, the Word that spoke the world to life, and He has come to our world. But He's not born in a palace. He's not even born to a rich family. There's nothing about His external appearance that would suggest that there's something incredible going on. He's born to a peasant carpenter family. Most of His very short life, He only lives to be about 33 years old, is lived in obscurity working in a small town, out of the way. He didn't even have a Twitter page where he could post like Jesus thoughts. I started following God on Twitter recently. Kind of interesting. <laughs> He's simply working in Nazareth, bu building furniture and cultivating a life with God, preparing for what's to come. It's all very mundane and very ordinary. And what I think, and, and sort of our working theory, is if we are a, to apprentice ourselves to this Jesus, maybe this way that Jesus lived his life has everything to do with the shape of our apprenticeship. You see, we always convince ourselves that it is our circumstances that work against our cultivating a life with God. That if we had been born into a different family, had a different job, had different friends, don't tell them, don't, they won't take that well, lived in a different town, then we would become the kinds of holy people that God wants us to be. But what if, what if God is saying to you that right here in the very soil of your very ordinary life, your personality, your circumstances, friends, your past, what if God is saying to you that that's exactly the kind of soil at uh, which a life for God and with God grows out of? There's a great contemplative thinker who was a monk in the 15th century, and he literally just worked in a kitchen. But he cultivated this incredible life with God. His name was Brother Lawrence. And he says to, to us this way, he says, Our sanctification, which is a nice fancy word for saying becoming more holy, becoming more like God. Our sanctification does not depend upon changing our works, but in doing that for God's sake, which we commonly do for our own. It is a great delusion to think that times of prayer ought to differ from other times. Listen, I'm not a gardener by any stretch. You know, I've told this story before, but in our previous home, um, Courtney and I were, were new to landscaping. 
And, you know, I was trying to stay on top of that. And if you don't stay on top of it, you have other problems on your hands. So I was like, okay, I'm going I'm to weed this little plot of land here. And uh, so I spent some time doing this. And then I go inside. And, you know, like, there's this, this like, I, I don't know if it's a male instinct. There's this human instinct to want to, like, show what you've done. Like, almost like me holding up what I've killed. It's like, here's this weed, and I have dominated this thing. So I, I go inside, and I have this thing in my hand. I'm like, Courtney, look at this. It's huge. I pulled it out just for you kind of guy I am. She goes, yep, those were tulips. <laughs> so the reality is when you garden, it is a good thing to know the difference between, between a weed and something that is growing that will be, bring beauty or food or life. And for us, we have to get a sense for the weeds. We have to understand the things that we need to clear out. Because oftentimes the first step when you start to to cultivate, when you start to harvest a patch of land, is you have to clear the things out of there that you don't want in there. And so for today, I want to look at some of these things. And and I'm going to do a lot of teaching today and just kind of clear the ground for this series and kind of as we go forward. Um, But but I want to clear the ground because um, for us... There are so many things in our culture, so many things in the, in the air that we breathe as people in, in Western culture, as, as citizens of the United States, that, that are working against our cultivating a life for God. Now, I want to say one thing very important here. I find that any time pastors are doing sort of cultural critique, they run the risk of sounding like the street preacher on the corner, being like, everything is evil and broken. Let me just say, I am not saying that. What I feel like I'm trying to do today is to show fish the water that they're swimming in. For us to begin to see the the world that we live in, to see the things that would work against our cultivating a life for God. And so we want to, to understand what are some of those things that want to choke out this life that God has for us. So the question that we're asking and hopefully answering during this series is what are some of the rhythms that make for a life that grows in the love of God? Or asked another way, how do we cultivate a life that grows and responds to God and increases our capacity to know and love God and embraces the limits that we have? Some of you have small children. You know, my wife and I, we have three small children. Those are profound limits to what God is asking for us. We have to embrace the season of life that we're in. Some of you, you are, you are single and you're living out of a different sense of limits. Some of you are on the, on the edge of retirement. You're, you're approaching a different set of limits. And so we want to be a cognizant of where we are as apprentices to Jesus. And we want to see what God is doing in the midst of those things. And so in order to do that, in order to kind of see the different layers that we have to our life, We've come up with a, just a little paradigm we call the four C's. Jen, you can put that up there. Uh, the four C's for us, contemplation, and we'll dive into this next week because that word uh, is not one that we use commonly in our culture. Uh, community, uh, which we all kind of long for and want. Congregation, which is right here. Good job. You got that one checked off. And then commission is supposed to be the fourth one, but <laughs> apparently, yeah. All right, so... We'll get that fixed. Hey, go to the next slide. See if we have it right on that one. All right. This serves two purposes. This is for those of you who are visual. And this is also me begging for help if you're a graphic designer. Because look, I figured out how to do this in Keynote where you could just make different shapes. So 
I'm pretty proud of that too. So contemplative are immersing ourselves in the love of the Father. This is our time in silence and alone. Community, our time with people that know us and where we are known. Congregation, this element, like what does it mean? Why do we come together? Like what's the point of Sunday morning uh, specifically? And then commission, how do we get up from here and then go out into the world with the love of Jesus? And so that's a little bit of the groundwork for where we're going during this series. And as, as we approach today, I want to just kind of dig in. What are the things that work against our cultivating a life for Jesus? So Jesus tells a story about this, as he so often and beautifully does. In Matthew 13, if you want to turn over there, you can, and it'll be on the screen as well. He starts in verse 3. Listen. A sower went out to sow. I guess that's what a sower does. And as he sowed, some seeds fell on the path, and the birds came and ate them up. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil, and they sprang up quickly, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and brought forth grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. Let anyone with ears listen. And then Jesus does something that he very rarely does. He just explains the whole thing. Usually he tells stories and he's like, good luck. But today... He's feeling quite gracious. And so he goes on later on in this chapter in Matthew 18. He says, Here then, or Matthew 13, verse 18, excuse me. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what is sown in the heart. This is what was sown on the path. And for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet such a person has no root but endures only for a while. And when trouble or persecution arises on account of the word, that person immediately falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of this world and the lure of wealth choke the word, and it yields nothing. But as for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and who understands it who indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another case sixty, and in another thirty. Jesus is describing a pattern that cycles in our own day. So what are the forces, what are the things that work in our culture that threaten the soil of our lives? I want to unpack three today that I think are powerful, yet subversive forces. They are implicit in this cultural moment that we live in, They're not obvious, but beneath the surface of many of our assumptions about the world and the way that it works. I'll be drawing a lot on a Catholic teacher uh, named Ronald Rollheiser. And Ronald Rollheiser is a, uh, you know, kind of a mystic, contemplative guy who looks a lot at the world. And you find that people that spend a lot in prayer have really, really radiant perspectives on the world. So we'll be drawing from his work today. Um, and so the, the first cultural feature that threatens our, cult, our, our life, cultivating a life for God, is, is narcissism. Now the notion of being called a narcissist for most of us is really painful, right? Like if somebody were to call you that, that would be very insulting. And so I hope you don't feel insulted here this morning. I'm not calling you a narcissist, I'm just saying you live in a narcissist world. 
mean, have you ever been in a conversation with somebody who only talks about themselves? It's pretty painful, right? It's insufferable. But the very air that we breathe is an us-centered approach to our world. Think about it. What is the golden rule in our culture? It's certainly not Jesus' golden rule of do unto others what you would have them do for you. Rather, in our culture, it is do whatever you feel as long as it does not hurt anyone. Now consider your phone. The most popular smartphone in the world is aptly named the, yeah, iPhone, right? Somebody say Samsung Galaxy. You rebel. Now remember when U2 automatically downloaded one of their albums to every iPhone user? Anybody have this happen? How many of you are happy about this? You should be. U2's awesome, but it's fine. Most people were pretty upset. Somewhere between like a violation of privacy, but nonetheless, this is my phone. U2, Bono, and The Edge stay off of it, right? And so people reacted, interestingly. Consider the revolution that is the camera phone. The camera was an innovation that became accessible to the masses in like the mid-20th century. It was a way to capture the wonder of the world, moments with family, photos that you uh, had to be really committed to take because film was really finite. Anybody ever go on a trip when they were younger and have one of those disposable cameras? Like, I, I don't know. I always had so much hope at the beginning of those things. Like, oh my goodness. Uh, this is going to be amazing. And then I would get the, the f- maybe get the film developed. And, well, let's just say there were a lot of pictures in my pocket and other kinds of things. Now, my children now don't have any sense of this sort of finite nature of the film. They hold down the button on the iPhone. And it literally takes a million pictures in like 10 seconds. And we carry around this semi-unlimited camera in our p- pockets. It can now... Now it not only faces the outer world, it can be turned back upon yourself, right? You You can use it as a mirror. You can use it to communicate with the wider world. Humans are creatures that use tools to make meaning. And that's exactly what we've done. Our narcissistic culture has a narcissistic tool at our disposal at all times. Our social media apps are a mirror into what we find significant, who you follow on Twitter, that probably says a lot about your worldview. How good you are at editing pictures and applying filters on Instagram. How, how, is, is, or how often you travel or go to a concert or eat incredible food is really just another way of saying how awesome is your life. It used to be said that the eyes were the windows of the soul. But because our phones are now the lens literally through which we see the world, our phones are the window to our souls, the window through which we see the world. And hear me, our phones are just a symbol. Your phones are not inherently evil. You're not carrying around a little demonic device in your pockets. It's okay. They're just a symbol. You may be sitting here saying, well, I don't use my phone that much, or I'm not even on Facebook. Good for you. Facebook is a dumpster fire. Or my kids don't even watch TV. Well done. But culture isn't so easy to opt in and out of right? We are like fish swimming in water. We know no other reality through which to see the world. We only know the world we live in. And this bleeds into our messages about what it means to be successful, what it means to matter in this world, how we express that radical individualism, which really uh, 
springs up from the, the narcissistic soil of our culture. We are the focus of everything. Our goals, our emotional well-being, our feelings, our development, our education. Mark Sayers, Christian thinker, says it this way. What we are experiencing is not the eradication of God from the Western mind, but rather the enthroning of the self as the greatest authority. God is increasingly relegated to the role of servant and massager of the personal will. Ronald Rollheiser says this, the unconscious, and in many cases the conscious mythology that move people today, is that of success, of moving up the ladder, of being rich, of having a beautiful body, of being well-dressed, of having prestige, of luxuriating in material comfort, of achieving optimally, but in comfort, everything that is potentially attainable within our limits. In many cases, this brings with it unashamed ambition. Look, our society would say, this is the way, this is the way. Develop yourself, achieve, maximize your potential, and you will find meaning. You will find security. You will find community because people think you're awesome. You'll even outlive other people because you've exercised so much and ate so well. Good for you. Now hear me, because I think this is so important. These things are not in and of themselves bad things. It is not a bad thing to be successful. It is not a bad thing to eat well. None of those things are inherently bad, but it's the motivation that comes from them. Because what these things are promising as they're sort of added together is, is salvation. But what Jesus embodies is a different way. Not a way that is focused on himself. Not a way that springs out of, oh, I am the son of God, so I should deserve these kinds of things or this kind of life. Jesus models a different kind of life for us. Paul says in in Philippians chapter 2, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any consolation from love, any sharing in the spirit, any compassion and sympathy, make my joy complete. Be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to the interest of yourself, but to the interest of others. And let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, he was literally God in the flesh. He did not say, I'm going to hold on to that because that's who I am. He regarded that as nothing. He emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God also exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow on heaven and on earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Friends, there is nothing wrong with pursuing the God-given potential. But when then that is in and of itself salvation for us, when that is promising something that it can't deliver, it will fall short. And what, what Paul is saying to us is that Jesus didn't start there. Jesus started with, how can I look at the world in order to serve and to love others? And this is what, uh, as we s- seek to cultivate a life with God, a life that grows into who Jesus is, this is the starting point. We have to move beyond ourselves and our feelings because we live in a narcissistic world. We live in a world that would say that you do you and that that is the ultimate and highest good. 
So the first thing that sort of the, the weed that tries to choke out the soil of our contemplation is narcissism. The second one that kind of works against us is pragmatism. Pragmatism is a philosophy and a way of life that asserts that the truth of an idea lies in its practical efficiency. Now you can see how these things even build on each other. If narcissism is looking at the world through the lens of how things affect us, then pragmatism is evaluating everything according to how it affects us and employing strategies in order to make sure things work for us. Now think about how God presses against pragmatism throughout the scriptures. I'll just give a couple of examples. In Genesis 2, he places trees in the garden that serve no other purpose other than that they are pleasing to look at. The first thing God does for slave people coming out of Egypt is he gives them a day of rest. He says, for so long you've been known by how much you could produce. One day a week you will produce nothing and I will take care of you. You've been treated as commodities. You've been pieces in a machine. And now you will be my people. And one of the main significant markers of being my people is that you will rest. When Jesus is resurrected from the dead, he trusts the mission of proclaiming the gospel, the reality that Jesus is king to the church. Now there are so many other ways that Jesus could have told the whole world that he was risen right? So many other ways than broken, flawed people. But Jesus goes back to his friends. He sits down to a meal with them, and he says, friends, go and spread this message. Jesus is not in the business of pragmatism. Jesus is in the business of relationship. Thomas Merton, another Catholic thinker, when asked, what is the leading spiritual disease of our time? He didn't say people doubting whether the Bible is trustworthy, people being sinful or lazy. His answer to the question was simple. Efficiency. Ronald Rollheiser says it this way. When self-worth depends on achievement, then very few persons are going to spend much time in prayer or contemplation since these are by definition non-utilitarian, pragmatically useless, a waste of time, a time when nothing is accomplished. Cultivating a life for God is going to involve some things that don't seem like they make sense, like they are working for us. And one of our bets as a church is that cultivating deep rhythms, both, both personally and corporately as a church, that shape us in the way of Jesus will go so much further in transforming both our own lives and the reality of this community than simply church building strategies. Paul writes to a church in Corinth that is wanting to speed things along. They want to be regarded in the eyes of the world as powerful and wise. And who among us doesn't want to just be looked at as successful, as, as people who have it together? They have no time for the slow work of transformation and formation in Christ. And in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 18, Paul contrasts the ways of the world with the way of the cross. He says, For the message about the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the very power of God. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, things that are not to reduce to nothing things that are, so that no one might boast in the presence of God. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption in order that, as it is written, 
Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Friends, there are so many things that we think are working for us. And what, what the, the, the life that God has for us is saying is that we have to entrust ourselves to his life and to his process. The pragmatism, efficiency is not the way. Because so much of that is driven by our feelings in the moment. God is doing things over the long haul. He's cultivating people who will walk with him, for not just for this life, but for all of eternity. And it's going to take some time. It's going to take some patience. It may even take a couple of dark nights of the soul where you're doing all the things that you've always done. You're praying, you're reading the Bible, and God seems nowhere. God is not in the business of efficiency. He's pressing against that because our culture would say, if it works, it's good. If it doesn't work, then why bother? The last cultural malady that Rollheiser identifies is unbridled restlessness. And as he says, restfulness is not, the opposite of restlessness is not doing nothing, but is a form of awareness, a way of seeing and a way of being in life. Rollheiser describes what he calls a greed for experience. And look at how all of this begins to build on each other. We are restless. We are restless beings, and part of that was ingrained into you. We were born to be restless. We long for a heavenly city. All those people who long for justice and for beauty, Christians are sitting there saying yes and amen. That is what God has hardwired into our very existence. But there is a restlessness that comes into our world. We're restless thinking that we have to fulfill all the things that our culture tells us that we need, that we have to travel to all those exotic locations, that we have to fulfill every desire, that we have to buy everything that promises that it's really going to change things for us. Like if any of you ever gotten a new shirt, and you're just looking at that shirt like, I'm a new man. I'm a new woman. Things are different. And then two weeks later, you're like, I... I hate that shirt. But this is what consumerism does to us. It promises something that it can't deliver. And so when we, when we engage in this cycle, we are pragmatic. We have to get into the best school. We have to be incredibly successful. We have to pursue wealth and security, which only feeds our narcissism. And we have to look good doing it. And because we have built this kind of lives for ourselves, imagine... Our feelings and our reality are enthroned as the center of the world. When you have accomplished everything that is good in your life, then you do not need God. When it's all because of how smart you are or because of how hard you worked, then you are the author of your own salvation. And then we turn to our ultimate tool for narcissism and we put it all on Instagram, right? Because our culture is narcissistic and pragmatic and restless youth, Superficial beauty, wealth, success are the ultimate values. Rollheiser says this, he says, In this posture of unbridled restlessness, we stand before life too greedy, too full of expectations that cannot be realized, and unable to accept that here in this life, all symphonies remain unfinished. When this happens, an obsessive restlessness leaves us unable to rest or to be satisfied because we are convinced that all lack, all tension, all unfulfilled yearning is tragic. 
Thus it becomes tragic to be alone, to be unmarried, to be married but not completely fulfilled romantically and sexually, to not be good looking, or to be unhealthy, aged, or handicapped. It becomes tragic to be caught up in duties and commitments which limit our freedom. Tragic to be poor, tragic to go through life and not be able to test every pleasure on earth and fulfill every potential inside us. When we are obsessed in this way, it is hard to be contemplative because we are too focused on our own heartaches to be very open and receptive. Go back to 1 Corinthians 1. The wisdom of this world is foolishness to God. And the cross, which is the ultimate expression of God's wisdom, is foolishness to this world. Paul is reminding the people of Corinth, and he reminds us here today, that a man of sorrows, Jesus of Nazareth, a man of unfulfilled potential, only lived to be 33. What a tragedy. Arrested as a criminal in the prime of his life with no children, shamed publicly. He was the ultimate failure. He dies alone. Even his best friends leave him in a way that is torturous and humiliating. And worse yet, his death proves that surely he was cursed by God. That all those people that said that, that, that he was this certain sort of person, his death on a cross proves that they were exactly right. And yet what Paul is saying here is that this moment is the fullness of exactly how God works in the world. He reverses the course and the natural order of things. He turns it upside down. And it's in this place, this soil, where things are not as we would expect, that God is inviting us to build our lives. Grace is so surprising so astonishing that we find in the soil of God's love and his rest that all things grow. We don't have to strive to find our identity. We don't have to manufacture our own rescue. Jesus has already done it. He's saying, repent. Change your posture and your attitude towards what matters in this world. Change your actions that are seeking to build your soil, your life in the soil of somewhere else and rest here. Friends, as we begin this series, as we begin this moment, we see that God is inviting us to rest. That God is inviting us not to, to have to define our own existence or not to have to achieve something in order that we might be something, but to become like Jesus, who, though being in reality God, regarded that reality as not something to be held onto, but became nothing for our sakes. And friends, we can trust that God is working in the moments of our lives, that the, the moments of your lives are not somehow differentiated from God's presence, that he is filling every part of them, the beauty of your work, the beauty of your relationships at home, he's filling every part of that with his presence. And so today we begin, and we want to go on a journey. We want to see God for who he is. We want to begin to take steps down a lifelong path of following Jesus, of apprenticeship to him. And he invites us, and he is good and he is faithful. You can rest here. Let us pray. Beautiful God. Lord, we ask that you would make your reality, your formation, God, clear to us. God, that you would strip away all the weeds and the thorns and the things that choke out life for us. God, as we seek to define our own realities, that we would see that you have made a way, God, that you are our rescue and our salvation. 
God, that we are not known by our darkest moments. We're not known by our worst failures, God, because you are a God who doesn't work in pragmatism, God, who doesn't work in efficiency, who doesn't work in the ways that we would define ourselves, God, but you have defined us as yours. We are who you say we are, and we are your children, your daughters and your sons. And so, Jesus, I pray over these people, God, as we receive this word, God, that our community, God, that the individuals here would be soil, that your life would grow in, would flourish in. Jesus, that we would see that as you turned the world upside down on a cross, God, as you sacrificed yourself, as you gave, uh, Lord, you, you also sacrificed all things that we would use to define ourselves. God, may we place our ambitions in knowing you and being known by you. We love you. It's in your name we pray. In the name of Jesus, amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. For more information, please visit www.ecclesianj.com.